Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with soon-to-be Senator Eric Ortz. Eric, how are you doing? Well, that's optimistic of you to say it that way. Thanks very much. But I'm doing very well, and I'm happy to be back and talking with you. Well, I happen to have read your webpage. I know your policies, and we spoke last time. And all right, so let's frame this for the listeners. You are I'm not sure if you're still teaching. I mean, I know you as a, as a professor at Wharton. You have a law degree, so you also teach in lots of different areas, not just straight business. When we last spoke, it was September, October of last year. You were strongly considering, but not yet formally committing to running for Senate in the great state of Pennsylvania, my home state, where I spent the first roughly 18 years or 17 years of my life. I hope you still have a voting uh, privileges here. Well, my dad does. There you go. Okay, we'll have to get him uh, get him on board. Yes. So when we spoke, there were a couple things I want to follow up on. One is that the big thing is that in your life, you have committed, you've been running now for some time. I, I don't remember exactly when you committed, but I remember getting the email. And separately, you also committed on that podcast to go for a year without flying. We're not quite at a year, but it's already been, for many people, that would be a long time. And I'd like to split the time between both of these things, because to me, Running for office is no little thing, both for your personal life and also for the effect on the state, your constituents, and and the nation. And since we last spoke, there's been an election and things have changed a lot. I think so. I'm going to jump into talking about the your life and and what it's like running for office and how things are going. And I guess the first thing is the big thing seems to be that you two big things were motivating you, if, if I remember right. One was the risk of the United States moving toward tyranny, and the other was the environment. I think there are other issues as well, but those are the ones that came up in that conversation. You're an Eagle Scout. You have this business background. You're deeply impassioned. And I could see you becoming more impassioned. I could see, I think a lot of people probably become jaded. I don't see that happening with you. I can also see your personal life going nuts. What were some of the big things? What, do you remember what led you to commit? And what about the election? That must have been one of the bigger effects on you. Yeah, well, uh, thanks a lot. There's a lot of questions there, but uh, let me try to just start back from when we last spoke. At that point, I wasn't a, we, we had started an exploratory committee, which means uh, for me, essentially getting a number of people together, including friends and family and getting a check of like, does this make much sense? And then you go out and you get professional advice. So you try to talk to politicians. I think I had already talked to Joe Biden uh, when we talked last. Um, I talked to uh, Governor Ed Rendell, former Governor Ed Rendell. I talked to a number of other people. What's this like? What do you do? Recently, I had a talk with a spouse of a congressman. I won't mention a person's name, but it was really helpful. It's like, what do you have to go through in the process? You know, what are those issues? So there's lots of things to consider. And I think as it came down to it, we one of the things you also start to think about is, can you raise enough money? Unfortunately, mm-hmm. raising money is a significant part of running for election in the United States. I think it's too much of a part of it because we don't have matching funds kinds of proposals, et cetera. So we really have to just call a lot of people and try to raise money for your cause. But in the course of the year, talking it over with various people. And then I think the most important person to convince and to get on board was my wife, Julie. And she is now on board and she's probably my primary asset. She has a lot of um, expertise in in financial kinds of issues and and is serving as our treasurer. And so um, all the pieces basically fell into place. Since we talked in October, uh, Pat Toomey, who I was thinking would be the likely opponent, decided he wasn't running. And so he's retiring because I think he feared a primary, or I don't know his motivations for. He may have wanted to stay true to his uh, pledge that he would only be two terms. And I'm in favor of term limits too, by the way. I think two terms is enough for any senator. But whatever that, whatever his reasoning, he retired, and that changed the situation because that meant it's much more likely that a Democrat can win in Pennsylvania if you don't have an incumbent. Republican who's going to uh, have a lot of uh, political capital 
and maybe some chits to call in, et cetera. So that was one change. And then we started looking at the race and you see who comes in the race. And so then the final change for me, just kind of fast forwarding to July 2nd, which is when we filed with the Federal Election Commission to actually run, was that uh, we looked at who's in the race and who, is there someone else in the race who would be better than I would be, who was going to bring forward issues on climate and Senate reform, which are the two big issues? Are there someone else in there that should do that instead? And uh, one of the big changes was there was a decision by the Fab Four, who are the women who are elected to Congress in the collar districts or counties around Philadelphia, uh, not to run. And so there, that Madeline Dean's not running. Chrissy Houlihan decided not to run. And so uh, at that moment, we said, looked at the field and said, you know, we have a place here. We think we can win in November against a Republican candidate who will probably be a very strongly pro-Trump candidate threatening exactly the kinds of things you were mentioning about where we're going in a country, preserving our democracy. And so um, we decided to go for it. So that was July 2nd. And to answer your other question about the university, I'm very happy the University of Pennsylvania has granted me a leave of absence. So I won't be being paid during this year and hopefully a year and a half of the period of running for office. But it's very privileged. I'm very grateful to them that being a tenured professor at a, at a school like the University of Pennsylvania, I'm, I'm allowed to take a leave of absence. And uh, if things don't work out, then I will have a job at the end, which is not true for many people. So I feel very uh, lucky in that respect. Plus, they figure if he doesn't win, we get a professor now with even more real-world experience. And if he does win, we got to say in the Senate. <laughs> well, that would be a plus, I hope. We'll see what the students think about that. But I think that that's, I, I think that that's a plus. I have to say that the you know, response that I've had from former students and students has been really positive. And uh, it's actually that generation is another major motivation for me. The younger generation, and I know you share this view as well, really sees climate as the top issue. It's not theoretical for them. I mean, for someone like me, you know, I'm going to survive. You know, the world, you know, there's wildfires out west. Maybe there'll be even something bad hits Philadelphia, whatever. But for the next generation, they really see this coming down like a freight train on them. And they see the older generation not doing anything about it. They're sitting around doing nothing. The country is literally burning. And we still don't have a Senate that, that half of the, 30 of the senators do not believe climate science. Uh, you know, they all they all are Republican and we don't have an effective majority to push something through that is really effective against the fossil fuel industry. And so until that happens, the younger generation, I think, is really very upset and they want to see political change. And so the, I get a lot of energy in being with them. Uh, one thing I did since we talked, uh, Josh, is I went to uh, Washington with the Sunrise Movement. And a number of, uh, I've been talking with various hubs of the Sunrise Movement in Pennsylvania and um, got, was notified, hey, there's a march. Do you, do you want to come with us to the march on Washington? We're marching on the Capitol. We want to uh, show up at the White House. And we're going to tell President Biden, okay, we elected you, but now where was the action? Where, where's the deal? We want climate action. And uh, it was hot day and it was very inspiring to be with them. And that's why I think we really have to make climate the top issue is for the next generation, for, for our children and our grandchildren. You're one of the few counterexamples of a trend that gets me. There are not a whole lot of things that get me really, it's not full on angry, but when I hear an old person saying, I'm so glad that the young people are acting, they will fix the problems that we started. I think that's an old person trying to abdicate responsibility because Agreed. the young people, many of them are too young to vote. They don't, they're not in the halls of power. They're not on board seats. They're not CEOs. They're not in the White House. They're not in Congress. They're not judges. And if old people continue not acting, then the young people do what the old people did when they were young, which is they'll grow up and say, well, you know, I got a mortgage and I, you know, I really do care about the environment, but I got to do all these other things. And they're going to go back to, they're going to say, well, the next generation. And, but if we old people act, then, well, first of all, we should be able to do much more than they can. Because we can run for office, we can do these things. Oh, absolutely. We, not only that, we need to. It, it's not, I mean, it's not an option. Uh, if you listen to the science, 
the science is coming in extremely loud, extremely clear, and there's not any debate about it among the scientists. We are in trouble, and we don't have another generation to wait. So you're absolutely right about that. And that's why the young people are pushing on us. And you're right. It's, it's people like me who might, if I win an election, I'll be able to do something about it. I'm, I'm going to go make noise in the Senate. And if there are two or three more like me who are also elected, we're going to push through strong actions. I have a what I'm calling at the moment a green paper on the climate emergency. We have to push this stuff through and we have to make progress. Uh, so you're absolutely, absolutely right about that. One of the things that I'm doing with this podcast is to bring examples of people you are already leading by having committed in the last time. And in the email, so the listeners don't know this, but in the email setting this up, you're like, yeah, you want to share your experiences. And I believe, you know, that's not the biggest thing in the world, but it's something. And actually being a role model is a major part of leadership. So I'm creating role models of people acting so that people can't say no one else is doing it. And people do feel inspired. You're saying climate. And I think of environment as, I mean, I, like I pick up litter every day. So are you also including or are you keeping separate pollution, plastic, mercury, PFOA? I can certainly see focusing on one thing as being possibly might be politically more effective. To me, I think of environment as generally all these things. Is it all these things or are you focusing on one in particular? Or do you figure by focusing on one, it also, it, I mean, it will get most of those as well. No, I think, I think it's all of these things. I do focus specifically on the climate emergency because that is the most critical environmental problem that we're facing right now. And if you don't deal with the climate issue, a lot of the other stuff doesn't really work either. And, and I also find that if you focus on the climate issue, there's a lot of other issues that come out of that too. So climate, probably the second biggest problem that we face as, uh, as a world is biodiversity loss. We are in the sixth greatest extinction of species, and that is going to start to hit on humanity too. But that loss comes from, in part, climate. The fact that we humans are changing the climate so radically. So a lot of these things are connected, and I don't say that in a simplistic way, but I do think you have to pick and choose where you're going to make the biggest impact And a lot of the other issues, if you start to look at them very seriously, are connected with the climate issue, too. So even if you say, well, we'll do a lot of good, let's say, you know, we can do a lot of good saving saving a national park or expanding a national park for an endangered species or something like that. But then you turn around and look at, well, wait a second, if climate continues to change this way, there's going to be more fires in that park. There's going to be a change in the vegetation. So all the work you do to preserve that endangered species, that particular species gets wiped out by this larger change that's happening with the climate. So that's my rationalization or that's my rationale, my, my thinking about why the climate is the best focus right now. Okay. Yeah. And it, we just came off a, the Democratic primaries in New York City. And so I just had several of the mayoral candidates and city council candidates. And at a city level, it's much more visceral, especially in New York City right now. The garbage that we see in the streets is, mm-hmm. you know, for a mayoral candidate, that makes a lot more sense. But in a coal state, Pennsylvania, I mean, that's not the only thing about the state. I can imagine climate being a more visceral issue there. Yeah, and I think people think of Pennsylvania as a coal state, but in fact, the employment of coal is disappearing. And the biggest coal problem now in, the, in my state, Pennsylvania, is that people are losing jobs. The coal companies are going bankrupt, not so much because of regulation, but because natural gas and, and solar and wind power is a lot cheaper than coal. So economic forces are driving the coal companies out of business. So the problem you really have is how do you take care of the coal miners and the families of the coal miners and the dependents of people who have been associated with the coal industry? How do you take care of them? How do you uh, provide them with some jobs? How do you provide them with what I call, and I'm borrowing the term, a just transition to a new world? So what, what kinds of programs can we put in place that are helping to change the climate picture, which is bringing us a new clean energy future? How do you get those jobs to the people who were in the coal industry or the people who were in the fracking industry, which, in my view, is going the same direction? 
And it's a cycle that we've seen in Pennsylvania where you have extraction industries and things are great while they're extracting, but they leave a mess. They leave a lot of people without jobs. And then one way that you can solve that is by looking at how do you clean the mess up. So just give you one example is a lot of wells uh, that were drilled in Pennsylvania were abandoned. Companies went bankrupt or they just left, went on to another opportunity and they didn't do their they didn't follow their promises. They didn't clean up. Uh, so you have leaking methane from a lot of these wells. You have other problems that need to be cleaned up. Well, the people who live around those areas, who maybe a lot of them are not so happy about having had that fracking industry, those people need jobs and we can provide them to help clean up that problem and cap the wells, for example, so you stop methane from coming out of them, and that helps to solve the climate problem. So it's an example of how these things are all connected to each other once you start to drill down and really think about how do you solve this problem. And to me, the, the, I mean, when you really get down to it, it's, in my words, it's overconsumption, overpopulation, and this is where leadership comes in. If we believe that we must grow, we must keep extracting more and more and more then there's really nothing you can do, but you have to keep extracting because if, if your model for, if we don't, then the GDP will fall. And if the GDP falls, people will be out of work. And for out of work, then we can't maintain the infrastructure and hospitals will close and mothers will die in childbirth. Is, Josh, is that what you want? You want to return to the Stone Age? And a leader can help. I mean, economically, that's, my understanding is that that's off. Humans, there've been plenty of cultures throughout history who have lived stably and with higher marks than our current society on health, longevity, stability, prosperity. So if, if a model says you must keep growing, but they were stable and did just fine for centuries, then that model's off. People stick with models in their head for a long time, but I think leaders change the game. Managers can make the game more efficient, but we don't need a more efficient extract. We don't need more efficient extraction. We need to switch. Uh, that's my picture. Others may disagree. That's why I have so much hope in people like you who are not saying, oh, I hope someone else will fix this, but say, I'm going to do something to fix this. And giving people new models, new mental models, new images, new futures, new visions is, I don't hear a lot of that. I mean, Trump gave that and to a lot of people is my impression. Not to me. It didn't really speak to me. I didn't really listen to him and think, oh, that's a great future to go forward to. But a lot of people really did. And um, I'm curious, like, when you went to speak in D.C. with, was it Extinction Rebellion, did you say? No, it was uh, the Sunrise Movement, yes. Did mm -hmm. you speak with them or did you go with them or did you also, were you on stage and spoke? No, I, I had an opportunity to speak. I really saw myself as supporting them. And I said, you know, I'm here to support them. But at one moment, we were gathered with the Pennsylvania group, and I was asked to speak and said, you know, I'm, running, I'm thinking about running for office. I think at that time, I had not yet declared and, and had an opportunity to talk with them and, and see their perspectives. And I'm pretty much aligned with the Sunrise uh, platform. I think they're a very practical group, and they're becoming, I think, very powerful. Uh, you see in the Massachusetts race, for example, that their backing of Senator Markey basically won the race against uh, someone named Kennedy. It's not very easy to win against Kennedys in the United States because of, you know, for various reasons. But what I've seen of the analysis is they were the critical component. And I think younger people are getting more and more politically active. And so it was really very inspiring to see that because it is daunting to look at some of the problems as you're indicating. I think you do have to get outside the paradigms that we've received. But I would encourage other people too, you know, my age otherwise, to get involved, you know, talk, talk with the younger people and get a sense of what their concerns are. Because when we're in a position of responsibility, as I am, as you are, and as others and in uh, situations of relative comfort are, you, you have a responsibility to make the world a better place and think about what can you do? I mean, in my case, I'm deciding to take a pretty big step in running for office. I never ran for office before, but I think that shouldn't stop me from trying to make my contribution. And if I win, then I'm going to be able to make a big contribution, I think. And if I don't, then I'm going to make a good run and I'm going to raise the issues on climate and Senate reform that I think need to be raised. But I think 
everybody needs to try to think about how to do that, right? That's the best approach. And the approach, and this goes to your point about leadership, I think that those of us who are trying to do something in these respects have to encourage others to do the same. Don't just sort of sit on the couch and tweet about stuff or get upset and yell at the TV or even worse, watch TV and listen to stuff that's wrong, you know, and, and just makes you angry or, or brings you into those kinds of rabbit holes of, uh, of the internet. But, you know, getting involved can really make people, I think, feel better. It uh, gives you some sense of commitment that we can actually make a difference here, even though it may look difficult. When you get together with other people, you can realize, you know what, we can fight this battle and we can win. The oil companies are not necessarily going to be in control of our political process forever. We can wrest some power back in a democracy and we can make a better future for uh, the generations that come after us and for us now. Very refreshing to hear. I'm going to use this to transition to segue to last time we spoke, you committed to something. Now, I deliberately didn't ask you how things went because I want the listeners to hear what I hear. So I, and what you committed to is, for many, unimaginably impossible. For others, a challenge. And I'm curious, do you remember what, I asked you before committing to something, what motivated you? What have you thought about when you thought about the environment? Do you remember what, where did the motivation come from and then what did you commit to do? Well, as I recall, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, and I think we're on tape, so I might make a mistake on this. So we'll <laughs> go back to the video, go back to the podcast. I did not re-listen to the podcast from part one, but I think as we've been talking about, climate is my biggest issue. And I think you were challenging me on the radio station. I remember having some resistance to this, but you you successfully challenged me and said, "Well, what are you going to do? What are you going to what are you going to give up in order to what, what oh, do you have, have as a sacrifice? You. Here I have to stop you. It's not give up or sacrifice. And no, but no, no, no. Let me say. Let me say. I I know you have a different view about this, but okay. I was thinking about this because I think that we do need to sacrifice some convenience and some sense of comfort sometimes to really make a difference on the climate. So, but I agree with I, I agree with your reframing of that. But anyway, anyway, let me answer your question, then we can get into the motivations, et cetera, or how to think about it. But the correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I said, well, I'm not going to fly on airplanes for a year. And uh, the reason is that if you look at my carbon footprint, which uh, I think most of your listeners will know is what do you personally contribute in your own life to the climate problem? Because we all know greenhouse gases are produced. And so there are some things you do, like buy a gas guzzler uh, car, you're going to produce a lot more greenhouse gases than if you have an electric car or if you don't have a car at all and you take a bike. And so if you look at my own personal carbon footprint, in my whole life, probably a, lar- a huge wedge is international air travel or domestic air travel because it's a huge amount of jet fuel that it takes to put you from one part of the earth to another continent or over to California or even, in my case, a relevant issue, right, from Philadelphia to Pittsburgh. Like, should you get on a plane to do that? A lot easier. It's convenient. You go to the airport, yeah, okay, you have to go through security, but you're there, like, hour, hour and a half. Uh, take a train. Uh, we don't have high-speed trains. By the way, that's one of my, uh, one of my arguments for why we should, well, we should, we should have state-of-the-art, high, super high-speed train can, should connect Philadelphia to Pittsburgh, but it doesn't. It takes a long time, but you can either drive or take a train, and it's a lot less fuel used, especially if it's electric, it's renewable energy, it's producing electricity. But anyway, I had, as I recall, took a pledge not to take any planes. And I am happy to tell you that I have not done that. <laughs> so that's the answer to your question. Did I, did I keep my promise? Yes. I have not gotten on a plane since we last talked. All right. So I'm going to table what I was going to say. I was going to say in my lawyer talk, let the record show that I think people hear that it's a sacrifice at first. And I suspect that many times after they do it, if they do it acting on values that they care about, if I tell someone to do something and I have no idea what they care about, what they don't care about, then it may be, I may stumble onto something that for them is a big sacrifice. But if it comes from internal, when someone's doing something that they really care about, then I think they generally, they may anticipate a sacrifice, but I think their, their experience is often, in the way I put it, stewardship is not something that I have to do, it's something I get to do. 
And someone may say, yeah. oh, but Josh, you don't get to go to Machu Picchu whenever you want. And I'm like, yeah, there's, that's not a worse life though. It's, I, thought, yeah. I thought it would have been too. And to, to those who haven't done it, they're all like, yeah, Josh, you're different though. But let's hear in your case, what, what happened? What did you, has it been hard? Has it been easy? Has it been thrilling or boring or what? Well, first of all, let me respond. Just say, I, you know, I, I agree with you. I mean, I agree that what we get used to and what we think of as, as normal. And then if someone says, well, you know, do you really need to take um, all those flights? And if you think about, you know, my life as an academic, I look back and I was taking a lot of airplane flights, right? And a lot of them were to climate conferences, right? Ooh. So you go to, I went to the, you know, but my beginning in this field where I really got into the connection of business and the climate was that I took an airplane from Philadelphia to Rio de Janeiro in Brazil in 1992. And it was actually a life-changing moment because um, there are a huge number of businesses there. There was a record number for that time of world leaders, including President H George H.W. Bush. The State Department allowed me to be an observer of the events. It was a huge life-changing experience for me because I realized not only do we have to start doing something extremely seriously about climate and biodiversity and, and some other major issues, but I needed to change my research agenda and get into that. And I had been encouraged by that, by some mentors, et cetera. And so that was really important. Now, that trip, I think, made sense, right? Because I, I've committed a lot of time after that, but there were lots of other trips that I've looked back and say, especially after our COVID-19 experience, right, where we were doing everything on Zoom, you kind of think, you know, we really probably could have had this conference on Zoom. We could have saved a lot of... Um, uh, carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. <laughs> we had we had just got on Zoom and uh, made sure the renewable electricity that was connected it was a renewable electricity. So I, I fully support you on that. At the same time, on the sacrifice issue, I wanted to go back a bit to it because there are some things that people do. Let's take airfare. So what I've said is I'm not. I haven't been taking an airplane. And there is some. I, I think a, a some sacrifice of a convenience uh, factor if I. If you have to go to Pittsburgh and it's, it's easier to fly there. And so if you don't do that, it's kind of, it's like not that hard. But I think on the other hand, as I go to your point of view, at first it feels like a sacrifice, but as you're, as you're pushing me to think about, and I think I agree with you, you know, there's a lot of pleasure that one gets from going to, from Philadelphia to Pittsburgh that you miss when you're just on an airplane and you miss the whole state. So one of the things that I've been thinking about is, you know, the, in some ways, sometimes candidates can treat their own state like their flyover country. You know, a lot mm -hmm. of people describe, and I and I disagree with this description, a lot of people describe Pennsylvania as, oh, Philadelphia on one end, Pittsburgh on the other end, you know, what's in the middle, woods in the middle, or whatever else they want to say. And it's terrible, right? Pennsylvania is a huge, complex place. And so by not taking an airplane and pretending it's just Philadelphia on one end and Pittsburgh on the other, but you actually drive or take the train from one place to the other, you see all these other beautiful places. Some of those places are struggling. Some of those places have uh, amazing uh, natural beauty that you can stop off and see. They have lots of people who are lots of different industries. And you you start to break down this... Uh, this kind of map of the world that people have or this picture of the state of Pennsylvania, which is just wrong. It's not an accurate sense of the place. And it's been reinforced by this false idea that because we have airplane travel from one place to another, that's what matters the most to people. Or because most people are in one place or another, that's what matters the most. So uh, I guess I'm coming around to your point of view and the sense that but at the same time, one other thing I want to say about air travel, I think there, we have to be careful because a lot of times people will want to take a shortcut. So it's not a shortcut to say, I'm really going to reduce my travel. You know, tourism, maybe I wanted to go to a nice Bermuda Island or something, but you know what? Instead, let's go up to the Poconos or let's just take the car in some beautiful place in Pennsylvania instead. And that is a choice where, you know, some people would say, well, you're really sacrificing beautiful beach for this. But on the other hand, you know, part of what you're making central to your values is, is your choice. But here's a false choice, or here's what I think a lot of people do with respect to air travel. They buy an offset. So you take a plane, 
And let's say I said to you, Josh, I'm not going to fly, but um, don't worry. I'm going to play. I'm going to buy offsets. I'll buy carbon offsets. You are going to, if you do fly. You, and a lot of people do that, right? Well, you people, if yeah, you, if you do fly. Okay, if you do fly. But yeah. let, let me finish. Like, in some ways, I think a lot of people treat these offsets, and this is why I'm somewhat skeptical of them. First of all, there's a lot of skepticism about whether an offset really is an offset and for how long will the offset work and how do you really know when you're buying an offset in a market that that's really some sort of carbon offset that really makes a change in how what you personally contributed by taking that flight. The other thing, though, is it's, it functions like an indulgence in the old days of, the, of medieval Christianity, where you would send, and in a way it is, you know, if you're over-consuming and helping to damage the planet, I think it is a sin. Like it's a sin against the uh, how we think about the about preserving the natural world to some extent when you are going to overdo this. I'm not saying you know people don't have good reasons uh, that you need to take airplane travel, etc. But to treat it as if I can just pay money and then I'm and then I'm okay, I think is one of, is, is a trap too. That people can get into. And I think a lot of company, a lot of business company, a lot of a lot of big companies get into that trap too. And they say, well, hey, you know, we're just offsetting all this stuff. So we're good. Then we, we don't have to care. Yeah. There's a reason why the airline industry loves offsets because it promotes more flying. And you're saying you're being kind. I mean, I would just call it an outright scam. I think, but I I'm not running for office, though. Yeah, <laughs> it's been called that, too. But I'm trying to get to the motivations, too, of people who are, you think you're doing something good, and sometimes you got to scratch the surface of that and really examine, is this really, how much How much good is this doing? Or what could I do, do what could I do better? Or how, how could I do something better? If you like the show, I recommend acting, as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe it in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, it doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I want to get back to your experience. So have you had opportunities where you would have flown in the past and now you didn't? Or is it just, it might've just been that there was an opportunity to fly and you didn't have to do anything different? Yeah, there were a couple opportunities. I think for the most part, it made it easier for me because we had overlapped with COVID-19 continuing. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of uh, meetings that I would have had where it would have been something to fly to, to go to Ann Arbor for a meeting or something else I didn't have to do. So there were a few opportunities that that were passed over. But I I think one of the biggest things that was, was good about your challenge was to think about how your own individual behavior affects the world. At the same time, I guess one thing I think it's important to remember is that your own individual behavior, it doesn't make sense for people. And this is a trap that people get into. I don't know if you know Michael Mann's new book uh, called The New Cli- A New Climate War, I think, The New Climate War. But he, he goes into a very good analysis of how people can also get stuck in feeling guilty. That's not what I'm suggesting. So I don't, I don't want uh, a listener to misinterpret my comment and think, oh, Professor Ortz is telling me I should feel guilty that I take airplane travel. That's not what I'm saying. And I don't think people should get into that. But what I think what people should do is it get a sense of, okay, I'm contributing to this. And then, you know, I have a lifestyle in which I can contribute to this. Maybe I can go on what's called an energy diet a little bit more. And I think, you know, that's a, that can be a good thing. But also, this is a systemic problem, right? We don't solve climate by just convincing everyone to be good. And uh, we solve climate by looking at the systemic problem and working on a number of levels, including, and this is why I'm running for the U.S. Senate, including the national legal system and the economic system that's created, the political economic system that we have in the United States and in the world. And we look at how we plug in to systemic change that will actually get us there. And so it's both individuals not getting into big guilt trips on themselves and not trying to escape from the problem by just playing video games or getting upset or getting depressed. It's by individuals engaging, thinking about the problem seriously, but then also working with other individuals 
for systemic change as to how this changes. So it's not just like, I'm not going to take a plane. It's going to be, okay, well, how do we change the situation there? And so one thing I'm proposing is we should have a charge on jet fuel. Well, why is that? Well, for the most part, I'm skeptical of some charges on gasoline, for example, because it hurts everybody. But for the most part, a tax on jet fuel hits the people who are the ones who are have the biggest footprint. People like me, when I'm just uh, being a professor flying around, and that that makes sense to deter or to raise some money on that. Right now, in fact, under the Trump administration, Trump cut taxes on corporate jets. So you pay more, you pay 10 times more money on, in taxes if you take a commercial flight from Philadelphia to San Francisco, for example, than you do if you have a friend who's taking a corporate, <laughs> a corporate jet. So that makes totally no sense, right? But I think we should think about the systemic problem of switching the other way. So when would flying be okay? Flying would be okay if we have new fuels, which are under development, by the way. The European Union and its new Green Deal is trying to incentivize that. I believe the United States should go along with that, too. I think some of the big airplane companies, the airlines, are trying to invent that. So eventually, you could have hydrogen or you could have uh, some other kind of a, a biodiesel or some sort of other invention that creates pro, you know, carbon neutral, zero emission air travel. That's the way we have to think systemically and how you have to change. So we have been a world where you have zero emission air travel, you have high-speed rail that's electric, powered by renewable energy, and if people need cars, you have electric cars everywhere that's powered by a renewable energy, solar, wind, geothermal, other base, other renewable-based grid. So that's the future. That's a, that's the sense of the future, but you have to be thinking systemically about how do you get point A, which is not so great right now, to point B, which is this very, I think, positive and beautiful future. Now, I want to get back to your personal experience because I think there's a huge difference. To my ears, there's a huge difference between someone who's saying, this is what everyone else should do while I don't, and someone who's actually done it. And that, I want to get the, your experience out. If there were occasions where you could have flown and you didn't, and, and it wasn't replaced with uh, an online meeting, was there an example of something like that? If so, what did you do instead? What was the opportunity and what did you do instead? Or was it only things that, that the pandemic, for better or worse, took care of for you? Well, I think it was mostly pandemic issues, but there's opportunity, let's say, you know, to go to Pittsburgh. So, you know, I'm in Philadelphia. You know, if I'm going to be able to win the election, I have to go to Pittsburgh, right? So there's an opportunity to meet a group of people in Pittsburgh. I could go there personally, and maybe that would increase the attendance, et cetera, if I go there personally. But in truth, like you do, you don't have to, uh, if you don't fly there, you don't take a long trip there. You do it by Zoom. And so I think one of the takeaways from this for me is that one of the lessons that we can learn, I think, from the COVID-19 experience where we did, you know, COVID-19 was a terrible experience for many people. But one thing happened, and that was greenhouse gas emissions went down. Very briefly, and then we're right back to where we were before. So Now, we're right back to where we are before, but at the time of that difficult time of COVID-19, and we have to be careful because COVID seems to be coming back a little bit and because people are not paying attention to the science again. But I think that we can learn some lessons. When we go through a difficult period like that, I think there are lessons that we should learn. One of them is telecommuting. Well, anyway, to answer your question, that's one experience where tele, you do telecommuting and it's not that much different. It's not perfect, but it's not that much different than if, you, if I had actually gone to Pittsburgh for that meeting. So, that was, so I just wanted to get to the answer to the question. Okay. So I, I haven't heard a case of where you haven't flown but you haven't had to fly either. So I'm happy to have you on a third time because I'd love to hear if there's a time when you go through a big challenge and say, there's this very important thing in Pittsburgh, or maybe there's this very important thing in DC. I could fly there and either you do and there's a reason for it, or you don't and there's a reason for it. Because that's what that experience, that personal experience, I think that's what changes people. And I believe that your experience of going across the state Say that you choose to take a train or you didn't mention buses, but you can also take a bus across the state. Sure. I envision a, everyone will think, of course, he's going to fly. And then you figure out how not to fly and you do a whistle stop tour or something. I don't know. And it will be 
an experience that it's not what you give up, it's what you replace it with. And that if you replace it with something that is more of greater value, then it's not sacrifice. It's actually discovery. It's growth, personal growth, professional growth. Yeah, I think that's feasible. I mean, I, I mentioned to you that, um, you know, I don't think we can be, I don't think we should be at least draconian about some pledge like this. So like, I can imagine, let's just, you know, move forward. I think I think I have made a general pledge that I'm going to, I'm going to, try to not take planes during the campaign. Now, that doesn't mean what happens if there's some, could there be some situation if I won the nomination, it was really just Democrat versus Republican in October or something. And there was like, well, you have to be in Pittsburgh for this on this day. You have to be here for this day. Is there a justification for taking a plane? It might be that I'll make the, uh, I'll make a judgment and say, well, actually, you know, we're competing again in a race where you have to make that judgment. So I don't think it's a question of having an ironclad rule that you impose on your personal behavior in all cases. Cause I think that's not, that's really, I don't think, um, in my opinion, the way forward. As I just indicated, you know, I would not have had the experience of the Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro. If I had said, uh, I'm never taking a plane anywhere, you know, now maybe, maybe someone who takes that pledge, you know, for example, I am an admirer of Greta Thunberg who said, well, I'm going to go to New York and I'm going to be, um, I really take climate seriously. And so one of the ways I'm going to do that is live according to my values. And I do the same thing. And I'm not going to fly to New York from Europe. I'm going to take a a boat. And not only that, it's going to be solar powered. I think. I think it was a solar-powered... Uh, it was a sailboat. She didn't say, I'm going to sail. She said she wasn't going to go, and someone else said, I'm, I'll sail you there if you want. Yeah. So, okay, let's take another example. So, I think her example, though, what I'm saying is, like, I don't think it would have detracted significantly, to me at least, from the power of, of Greta Thunberg's message if she had made an exception said, well, I'm actually going to get on a plane because the UN is inviting me to give a speech in New York and I have to get there, I don't think I would say, well, I'm not going to listen to her because she's not following her principles. I mean, this was done to Al Gore, which I thought was a really in a really egregious way where the Republicans were beating up on Al Gore and saying, look, he's not perfect in the way he lives his life. He, he takes planes around and he doesn't have as much sustainable energy as he says he should. That's just a false argument, right? Because the question is not just about personal behavior. Yeah, everyone, I think it's good to think about values, think about climate as values. But I also don't think it's something where you have to put a litmus test on every every single thing that someone does and then say, well, see, you know, Orts really must not care about the climate. Because, look, the guy broke his pledge and he got on a plane in order to get to the democratic debate or something like that, right? I think we have to be forgiving with each other about our commitments. And I think we also have to think about ourselves as, you know, trying to live the best lives that we can, as well as thinking about some of the systemic issues that are out there too, and not not getting caught up too much with um, beating up on ourselves if we're not perfect. So one of the things I've learned here is that a lot of people think you have to be perfect in this area. And then one of the reasons I think they don't try to take leadership position is they look at what you said, like Al Gore tried to do it and they pillory him. And what can anyone do? No one's perfect. And what I find is that people don't have to be perfect. They just have to show, or we just have to show that we're doing our best, but we have to do it genuinely and authentically. Yeah, I agree with you. What I found with Al Gore was I didn't find that he was authentically I don't know the guy. I haven't followed him too closely. But there are many politicians and leaders of lots of different areas who share their flaws. And they don't say, I'm perfect. They don't say that I didn't make a mistake. If we share genuinely and authentically, then listeners say, or people who would be followers say, I'm flawed too. If he is, he or she is, is they have flaws just like I do. And now I want that person to succeed. Because yeah. if they succeed and their flaws like I do, then I have a chance of succeeding as well. And then they view the flaws, yeah. instead of judging them for them, they support them for them. And that is why I keep focusing on your personal experience yeah. as opposed to, yes, systemic things are very important, but I don't know if you can read on, on the blackboard behind me. Sorry, listeners, you can't see it, but it's a systemic change begins with personal transformation. And my goal is to bring out personal people's personal experiences, not to bring a Disney perfect version. Like, oh, just declare that you're not going to fly and then you don't fly. 
that so far that's worked for me. I don't know if it'll if it'll go forever, but I'm interested to have you on a third time if, if as things evolve. Partly because I like hearing what you have to say, and also partly because I think that when you do face that challenge, no matter what, some people agree with that with what comes up, and some will disagree. And I think that when people hear what went into it and what didn't go into it, they'll be able to identify you, identify with you in a way they can't if you're simply saying, here's what we should do. And uh, the European scientists are figuring this stuff out over here. And we have to do systemic change. Yes, by all means. But if you say we have to have the systemic change, but you have, yourself haven't challenged yourself in that way, then, well, let me put it in a more positive way. If you suggest a systemic change and you say, I struggled through it, here's what works, here's what didn't work. Then I think it, my read is that people look at that and say, he knows what he's talking about. He's not just telling me to do something while well, he's not. Yeah. Well, let me give you another example, which I think maybe gets to your uh, point, or it's a personal transformation thing. And one well, first thing is that a lot of people don't do the things that are, are the best for the climate because they have inertia. And the funny thing is that even people who do this for a living, like I do, have have done for a while, sometimes don't do the thing that's really easy. So one example is insulating your house. And so one, I remember this is probably 10, 15 years ago or so, I was sitting around with one of my mentors who's an environmental uh, major wheel in understanding climate change, et cetera. I was sitting around with maybe four other academics and we were all talking about, yeah, how come people don't retrofit their house? It's like a no brainer. It's like, here's all the energy savings we have. And then we asked, well, how many of you each of, how many of us have actually done this? And none of us had done it. So it's an example where human nature is that you have a lot of inertia. That's why, you know, I have solar panels on our house now, but lots of people don't. And they would be making money if they did, because it's a no brainer if you do the actual math. But, you know, it's hard to do something else like that's, you know, you have to take certain steps. You have to talk to people. You have to, uh, you know, get the person on. You have to invite the person. It takes some work to do that. So you have to provide the incentives to change. But one other thing I wanted to mention was um, the divestment movement. So I've been involved in uh, increasingly in the divestment movement on university campuses to say, well, wait a second. If we really care about climate, how come we're making so much money on the oil companies and, and our portfolios? And a lot of uh, students, as you know, are going around and having protests. And at Penn, they uh, came to the board of trustees meeting and started yelling and saying, how come you guys are not divesting? And so anyway, uh, as a faculty member, I was thinking about that issue. And one of the things that we did last year was we have we, we formed a number of us on the faculty senate, formed a committee on the institutional response to the climate emergency. And then one of the actions that we took, and and I think you know, I was the primary author of this, but we said, you know, we're asking the university to divest or to take other measures. You know, there's not a consensus among the faculty as to what uh, the university should do necessarily on divestment. But we should also look at ourselves and let's get our own house in order. And so that's one thing that I did. But again, it took me a long time to do this. It's actually a little harder than you think to do your own, you know, 401k. I had to change my investments options in my account to say, okay, let me do all brokerage. And I'm a Wharton professor, so I have some idea how to do this without, I hope, <laughs> making terrible financial mistakes. But then basically divested, right? How do I divest and also be following good financial principles, portfolio theory, et cetera. I think, I hope I did an okay job with that. But, you know, it's another thing where it's easy to kind of sometimes point your finger at somebody else. And then it also makes sense to look at yourself. But I also think now, let's say more and more faculty are looking at their own portfolios and they're saying, yeah, I want the low carbon mutual fund option. I want green bond option. You know, there's a lot of options that you now have in the investment world the more people who do that individually, then I think can have a systemic effect where you're in a lot better, you know, you have a bunch of your faculty who are now divested uh, from fossil fuel stocks. That's going to be a lot more pressure on the board of trustees or the president to divest. And if you have more and more people who are following this kind of behavior, and I think this fits, Josh, with your, your general message, then you have more and more citizens who are going to go to the polls and they're going to vote for the 
climate candidate or they're going to vote or they're going to they're going to write letters and say you know president biden we don't think you're going as far you we voted for you because you were going to do x and we see you a little bit wishy-washy on that we want you if you want us to vote for you again you better get stronger right so i think that's the way the individual transformation can have an effect on the systemic side of things yeah, and I want to I want to bring that out in people, and and so that they're role models of speaking from experience. And now we have several open threads that we're not going to get to close. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess I will have to come back at some point if my if my campaign manager lets me. But I will I will. So I can't promise, but I would like to come back sometime. Okay, and I would love to have you back, especially it'd be most exciting if it's neck and neck. No, actually, it would be. If you're way out ahead. No, we want a blowout. We yeah. want, no, anyway, I don't think we're going to have a blowout, but we'll see. I think I'm looking forward to the competition and uh, I think it's going to be a, I think we have a very good shot to win. And uh, is that what you want to close on? I was, my, my usual question to finish off is, is there anything you want to say to the listeners to close off with? Well, I guess I will be a politician to the extent of my, my primary message and the reason that I'm personally you know, interested in getting in this race and we are now are in this race. There are two major issues that I'm pressing. One is that we are in a climate emergency and we need to act now. And we and the, and right now the the main sticking point and this is the second reason I'm running is that the United States Senate is stuck. It is uh, operating according to an old-fashioned rule called the filibuster, which means it is not getting anything done not only on climate but voting rights, immigration, gun safety, you name it. The Senate is pretty much doing nothing for last three decades, <laughs> So as long as I've been an adult. So those are the two issues, climate, the climate emergency, addressing it, and Senate reform. And if your listeners are uh, interested in that, they should go to friendsofericorts.com or Google me and uh, join up. And I hope you'll join us too, Josh. Yep, I'm on board. And I will also put the link on the site so people can click to save the search. Oh, thanks very much. Thanks very much. But this is a, it's been a great pleasure talking with you and uh, keep up all the good work. And uh, it's been a pleasure. Soon to be Senator Eric Ortz. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a great one. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.